I'm James Dahl, co-founder of Inspire You and Jess I Will Vote, and welcome to the sixth episode of Ramona Telling Our Story series podcast. On this week's episode, we have Sue Wilson, the chair of Bromain in Spain. We talk about why Bromain was set up originally, what it's doing now, and what the situation is for EU citizens living in the UK and for British citizens living in the EU post-Brexit. I hope you enjoy. So hi, Sue. Hello. Hi, James. Hey, how's it going? Fine, thank you. Glad Good. I'm in Spain. <laughs> yeah, sunny Spain, yeah. Uh, Brist- this was pretty rainy today, as we just spoke about. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you for being on the uh, Ramona's Telling Our Story podcast. Um, I always say, just to, as a, the beginning of the episode, a bit of a, chung, a tongue-in-cheek title, um, but with the purpose of trying to unpick what, what exactly a Ramona or Ramona um, is, which we'll get to later in the, in the show. So thank you very much um, for being with us. Um, first question then, who is Sue uh, Wilson? Tell me about who you were before all of the campaigning stuff. Uh, Well, I've been in Spain for 14 years, so when I was in the UK, I was a sales manager and a a management trainer. Um, I moved to Spain 14 years ago, um, and I worked here as um, an English language teacher, Um, and then the plan was to retire. But uh, then the referendum happened, and kind of the idea of retirement went out of the window. Um, so I'm now a full-time campaigner, as I have been since since the referendum. Um, I'm uh, officially a UK pensioner now. So uh, I'm retired, married, no kids, four cats. Four cats, brilliant. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, oh, fab. Okay, so you are now a full-time campaigner. So presumably before the referendum, um, this wasn't part of your life. No, absolutely not. I was not particularly interested in current affairs. I had no interest whatsoever in politics. So to actually become interested in politics against my better judgment was something I wasn't expecting to happen. Really? Okay. That's interesting. So I have a sort of my second question really on here is what were you doing on on the day of the referendum? So presumably not a great deal campaign wise. No, I wasn't doing any campaigning at that stage. Uh, but I was very interested in what was going on by then. Um, I guess I started to take um, real notice about six months before right. um, when it started to get more real. And also when things started to look like perhaps they wouldn't go the way that we'd hoped. Um, and then by the time that um, the referendum actually happened, I was starting to get a really bad feeling that it was all going to go horribly wrong. Really? Okay. Uh, so I stayed up all night to, to prove myself wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I, I proved myself right. You proved yourself right. That's actually really interesting because the, the very few people I've spoken to, leave or remain, had a feeling that it was going to go the way of leave. So you had a sense, was that from living out in Spain, do you think, or just? I think just from, from devouring the news in the UK. I just okay. started to get a really nasty feeling that, yeah. you know, everybody was saying, oh, it'll be fine. Yeah. And I just started to get the feeling that it wasn't going to be fine after yeah. all. Okay. Oh, so you had you actually had um, better instincts than the vast majority of us. So who I, I guess I mean I think for me at least at that stage it, it wasn't so much that I was following the news really. It was that I was I just dipped my toe in very slightly at that stage, but I was totally ignorant of of the picture of the wider picture. Um, so maybe that's why I just felt 
it's, it's going to go the way of Remain. It might be marginal, but it's going to go the way of Remain. Yeah. But you, I, mean, you I, thought had... it, I thought it was going to be close. And, yeah, and it, yeah. And it, and it, and it was close. It was so, close, yeah. I, you know, as, as, as the night went on, you know, watching the results come in, you know, you kept waiting for the big one, like Birmingham, for example, that was going yeah. to uh, push things in the other direction. But um, it, it never happened. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, obviously, the exit poll um, was, was leave, wasn't it? Um, and, and usually the exit poll is like the most accurate poll. You, uh, the exit polls haven't been wrong, have they, for, for a long... I don't, no, I think they're the normally polls, pretty close, I think. Yeah, and when it said leave, I was just like, oh, that's not good. Um, so what was your immediate reaction when the, when the result was finalised? When it was finally announced, and it was about six o'clock in the morning, I just yeah. burst into tears. Really? It was a mixture of shock and horror, disbelief. You know, I'd, 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 and a friend of mine phoned me at six in the morning in exactly the same state, knowing full well that I'd, I'd be up all night watching it as well. Yeah. And we just, you know, we, we couldn't believe it. We were just talking through, you know, what's just happened? What does it mean? You know, yeah. what happens next? Do you think, uh, this is an interesting one, because I, I have some friends um, around my age who I would say are, are fairly politically apathetic, don't really get it. Um, and when I talk about like the emotional toll that it, that Brexit's had, not just on me but on on millions of people, like particular, you know, and like people like yourself, um, they just look at me with a blank face, like, how can you possibly be that upset about something like this? Like, are you able to capture, considering you weren't a campaigner at that stage, are you able to sort of say why you burst into tears at that moment? No, I don't know why it affected me so deeply, mm. and I, and still does. No. I've never been able to explain that. I mean, yeah. you know, lots of people at the time um, said how it it compared to um, what you go through when you're grieving. Grieving. And it was exactly like that, except, yeah. you know, we never got to the acceptance stage. You know, there was anger, there was depression, there was sadness. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I found out that I, you know, I was a lot, I found out I was an angrier person than I thought I was. Yeah, me too. But but justifiably so in this yeah. case. Yeah, and there was a lot of swearing. I remember. <laughs> I, I'm sure I've read a paper somewhere that smart people swear more, or something like that. <laughs> I always I always take that. Um, so let's just move forward to a little bit to because I, I, I want to come back to the whole sort of identity thing and around what it is to be a remain and all that stuff later. Um, but how how did you, Sue Wilson? How did you get from a somebody that was that was crying on the day of the referendum? So it's obviously got you know a deep emotional tie to this um, this thing, this project, to actually becoming a campaigner. Because I I did a little bit of research about your story, and it was pretty rapid, wasn't it? That your your sort of movement into campaigning. Yeah, it, it took me about three weeks. Um, okay. For the first three weeks um, after the referendum, um, I was just on a complete roller coaster. I was bursting into tears at the drop of a hat. I was getting angry for no good reason, and. For, that happened every day for three weeks. Yeah. I mean, I, I I just don't know where that came from. And then on day 22, I just kind of woke up in the morning and thought, I'm not going to cry today. I'm going to do something. Yeah. So luckily, a friend of mine recommended uh, Remain in Spain to me, which was a group that had been started the day after the referendum by two uh, British women living in Barcelona. Okay. Um, so I, I joined the group. Um, I, I got very active very quickly. 
Um, so much so that um, they kept asking me if I would administer the Facebook page and I kept resisting and saying no. Um, but, but gradually over the space of a few weeks, by the time it got to September, they'd asked me if I would take the group over completely, which I did. Mm. Because it was just, it had grown so quickly um, and beyond all their expectations. And both of their founders were... Um, uh, had young children and, and their own businesses, and it was just too much. So as of September uh, 2016, I became the chair of the group. And you're still the chair today, is that right? And I'm still the chair today. Yeah. It's an obsession. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I mean, that the top campaigners are obsessed with their work, aren't they? I mean, you have to be almost. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's quite, that's, that's an interesting, to, to go from being almost a sort of a political novice to being a full-time campaigner. I mean, so so you are you current? Have you been working throughout this period as well, professionally? Um, I was in the early stages, but that, not for very long. I think basically oh, okay. it's it's been seven days a week for right. for four and a half years. Really, okay. I've, I've taken it on holiday with me. You know, really, I think yeah. I, I think I've had something like two weeks off in four years. Really, that's nuts. <laughs> Dude, that is actually nuts. Um, yes, I mean, I can I can, I can sort of. Um, my my story is similar in that sense. Actually, I, I live and breathe it, and I really don't tend to take tend to take time off. Um, I, I my the only time I've ever sort of like taken off, as it were, was after the general election, um, where I just decided I was just going to do Christmas and just not touch politics for for Christmas. Um, but yeah, it's you can't really leave it, can you? Because it means so much. You're so emotionally connected to to, to it, aren't you? I mean, you know, I've, I've found that social media is pretty addictive anyway, yeah. and and I always want to know what's going on. So even when I tried, like, you know, going on holiday and saying, right, I'm not going to look at the newspapers today, I was my own worst enemy, you know, I, I couldn't not know what was going on. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. Yeah. Because you, 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 a couple of days and all of a sudden you're out of the, you're completely out of the loop yeah. and you just think, oh. What's going on in the world? I need to know sort of thing. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Um, tell me a little bit more about the, the sort of the, what Bremain was set up to do, its, its aims, its values, what it was looking to achieve in the early days. Because obviously the, the people's vote came along some, some, some while later, didn't it? So th there was that period where it all felt a little bit rudderless. There wasn't, like when Jack and I set Inspire You Up, um, our aim at that stage was to sort of quote unquote challenge the inevitability of Brexit. We didn't really know where that was going to take us, but we just thought, it's just such a mad thing that's happening. Surely, surely we need to just keep the conversation going for, for the time being and just see how this works out. So what, what were the aims of Bremain at the sort of very early stages, 2016? I mean, certainly it was to stop Brexit. There was no okay. question. All our members always have been uh, and still are Remainers. Um, there, are, there are plenty of other groups um, that cater for, for Brits abroad. And many of them have uh, remainers and leavers in them. But what we, we always no, found. So what do we call Brits abroad? Are, they, are, you, are you guys expats? We're immigrants. No, immigrants. we're immigrants. Yeah. What, what <laughs> I hate say? the term expats, although it, it is easy to use for, for a shorthand, and everybody yeah. in the UK understands it. And yeah, obviously yeah. the media use it. But, yeah. you know, we don't want to um, identify ourselves as any different from any other immigrant like okay. EU citizens okay. in the UK. Okay. You know, we're foreigners yeah. <laughs> in, in a foreign country. And, okay. and that's fine. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah, of course not. No, of course not. Yeah. Sorry, um, I interrupted you. Sorry, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> oh, you were sorry. I shouldn't have interrupted you. Um, it was, um, you were talking about the, 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 
the, the fact that everyone in the group were Remainers and you were trying to stop Brexit, that was your, that was your objective yeah. earlier? Um, we, I, I have, um, you know, visited other groups where there's a mixture and especially in the early days, although uh, since Brexit happened as well, it's been true, um, some of the conversations are very argumentative and there's so much vitriol. And one of the main purposes of Remain in the early days and still now is to be a support function. Mm. We, and we want to know what people really think. And if you mix in both sides of the argument, you don't get the same level of openness or honesty mm. as you would. Mm. Um, so it's always been, you know, a, an anti-Brexit group. But, you know, the idea is to, you know, start a conversation with like-minded individuals to provide a, some kind of level of support and understanding. Yeah. Also to keep people informed, because obviously there's been so much going on and people didn't know how that was going to affect their rights or affect them personally or their families. Um, so it's partly about communication, um, but say it's also about you know providing that support as well. And I mean, I that's the reason I joined the group in the first place, and I yeah. found that very valuable. So it's been a pleasure to be able to continue down that road, and you know and for a very long time, I think we gave people some hope that, you know, we could actually stop this thing. Um, and at least now, you know, we're, we're now, obviously now Brexit's happened, now then we want to mitigate the damage. Um, and there's a lot that we need to do in Spain um, in order to make sure that, you know, people are properly registered, that they don't lose the rights that we have managed to retain. Um, but also, you know, to continue to the continue the fight, you know, Brexit might be over, but that doesn't mean it's the end of the story. It, 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 quite right, quite right. And I think that's something that the um, the Remain community is, I, I think, grappling with a little bit is, to what extent do we continue to focus our efforts now on either rejoining or on mitigating the current damage? Um, or do we focus on other political thing ideas that, that we need to focus on, like say, for instance, electoral reform? Um, so yeah, so uh, it's interesting because I, the question I had down next was to sort of say, has has the ha, have the objectives or what what were the sort of key deliverables that you thought were realistic? Have they changed over time, or were they have they always been the same and remain the same now? Well, it's, it was always to stop Brexit and to protect citizens' rights. Um, obviously, we didn't stop Brexit, but no. we can um, still hold the government to account yeah. as far as that's concerned. But the citizens' rights thing will go on yeah. um, because um, although um, obviously we've conce concentrated uh, to some degree on um, the rights of Brits that are already in Spain uh, or are already in Europe, it's also about those potential rights for Brits in the UK that want to do what we did, want yeah. to take advantage of the benefits that we took. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's very different as of the 1st of January this year. Uh, just uh, um, for those who perhaps don't understand or perhaps don't know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I fully understand, but who do you, who represents you? Because you don't, you don't vote in Spain, do you? And you no, no longer got MEPs um just to, to, to lobby so do you lobby mps your former mps from the uk you... um we do but it does rather come with diminishing returns especially once anyone's um 
been out of the country for 15 years because yeah. we lose our vote then. Yeah, I exactly. mean, I've, I've been here 14 years. So right. unless the uh, tourists suddenly um, uh, follow through on their oft-repeated uh, manifesto promise to give us our voting rights back before the next uh, election, yeah. and then I'm not going to be able to vote next time. Right. You know, I'm going to lose my vote next year. And so you'll be that's socially true. disenfranchised. You, you don't, yeah. You, yeah. 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 Uh, the only thing I can do is to vote in Spanish local elections, and not everybody has that um, ability either. It's not a blanket uh, ruling throughout the country or throughout the EU. So some people have no vote anywhere. <laughs> that, and that is actually, um, that's one of those things that I, I felt never really got discussed was the, was, was that, you know, you, I, I know that the Tories have had in their manifesto for a long time now, haven't they? The, the idea of scrapping the 15-year rule votes for life um or whatever they called it four manifestos i think it is now is it four, four, <laughs> right yeah yeah um and what's the just obviously this is a bit tangential but what is the hold up on that because i thought that was near completion i thought that was basically well that's a very good question i mean yeah. the last time it went through parliament it was a private members bill i mean i was there i sat in parliament and watched, you, it, right. get, watched right. it get talked down yeah um but um it didn't have uh, labor support Labour were um, actually trying to talk it down at one point, but in the end, it was a, a Tory backbencher that, that took the bill out. So presumably, so what, this is it comes down to it comes down to cynicism on the part of the, the, both parties. Labour think that there's more Tory votes out out in re, retired people out in out on the continent, and presumably, Labour don't want to empower those people and give more votes. Well, also, I mean, there, there has been has been mentioned in the press now that perhaps um, the Conservatives don't think that we would vote for them now. Well, yeah. So, so they're not quite so keen to push it forward. And of course, you know, with everything that's happened with Brexit and with COVID as well, you know, it's it's very much on the back burner. And we've, yeah. we see no sign of there being any um, movement towards putting a proper bill on the table. I mean, I've just written to Cabinet Office again because I wrote to them a month ago saying, where are we? And never got a reply. So. Really? Okay. Um, oh, yes, an ongoing battle. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so there's there's more than one reason now not to not to potentially want to retire to Spain because you lose your, your democratic rights that you were born with, potentially, if, you, if you've lived out there for longer than 15 years. I'm not sure that that alone would stop people moving, but it's certainly a lot more difficult, a yeah, lot more complicated, a lot more expensive now. And yeah. if I wanted to move now as a UK pensioner, reliant solely on the uh, state pension as my income, I wouldn't qualify. Really? I wouldn't be able to move to Spain because I wouldn't meet the, the criteria. I don't, my income is not enough. <laughs> Right. I've actually got a question on this later, so maybe we'll park that just for a minute. Sure. And we'll come back to that because I think that's that's a really important because there's how many people are there living in Spain who who've retired there from the UK? It's like over a million, isn't it, or something? Like um, no, there's it's um, over a million in the whole of the EU. Okay. In Spain, there's um, as far as we know, there's about three hundred and fifty thousand, but oh, okay. it could be okay. significantly more than that because not everybody's registered. Right. Okay. They've always been. Um, probably twice as many Brits living in Spain as said they did. Right. And obviously right. those people are not going to be able to get away with that now. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> um, but of, 
Of that 350,000 or however many it is, only 25% of them in Spain are retired. Oh, really? I, I thought it would have yeah. been a lot higher than that. Okay. We right. get all the attention. It's always about, you know, these retired Brits who live on the Costas. Yeah. And yeah. actually, we're just a small fraction of all the people who live in Europe. You know, 80% of all Brits across Europe as a whole are younger working people. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, <laughs> They're I, I, the I, ones that are going to suffer with their loss of freedom of movement, not indeed. me. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, both sets will, are going to are set to lose out, aren't they? But um, so... I want to talk to you a little bit more about your your activism and remains that's because obviously you and I we we bumped into each other at sort of various things over the years haven't we we, we were both <laughs> yeah. at the PV march and the march of change march and the no to boris stuff and all of that T tell me just very quickly just sort of like talk, talk me through like in like 2 minutes the sort of the, the key cuz you were in the UK I felt I, I I was seeing you more in the UK I bet you were in the UK more than Spain half the time throughout throughout the your years of campaigning I was I was coming over once a month um, and I was going really? to yeah and I was going to Brussels regularly as well so you know I was developing relationships with lots of politicians yeah which was a bit of an eye-opener because my first experience of uh, dealing with any politicians was when I presented to the um, Hillary Benz EU select committee that was in January 2017. No pressure there then. <laughs> I was so nervous. It was the first time I'd ever done anything like yeah, that. Yeah, um, The thing how that, that how, did, how did that go? It went very well, actually. Um, but the thing that surprised me, um, and this was true with all of my dealings with politicians over the last four and a half years, uh, especially in the UK, was I expected them to know lots of stuff and to be able to tell me. Mm. But any meetings I had with any politicians, it was always the other way around. I was the one with the information and they were the ones picking my brains. And, you know, I, I expected to get answers from them, but they just wanted to pick my brains, basically. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. So do you think that's, do you think that's because European Union politics is just far away? It's not really on their radar. There's no votes in it. I mean, are, they, are these just dim politics? Are we just living through a period of really like average political movers and shakers like why do you well, think, I think we is? are now i think you, you know the government, the government we've got now is dreadful caliber yeah but um, over the course of the last four and a half years i mean i've met some inspiring people um it's just they tend to be specialists okay. you know so they'll know a lot about two or three things but not about something else so Fair Fair um but now i don't think any of them know anything about anything <laughs> well certainly not this group in the government no yeah no I mean, there are some, let's be fair, there are some talented, knowledgeable politicians on the, on the opposition benches uh, and, and probably a few left on the, on the government benches somewhere on the back benches, but it's hard to spot. But they're them. very, very quiet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's a massive point against them is that career slash party before country. I'll never get over that and I'll never forgive personally, but that's my own, that's my own thing. Um, Sorry, I went off a bit of a tangent there. I was, I was going to mention about, obviously, one of the things that um, I did do over the last four and a half years was I took Theresa May to court. Oh, OK. Tell me about this. <laughs> it was the Wilson versus uh, the Prime Minister case where we were looking at um, the uh, referendum. Uh, we went through various stages um, and we lost in the end. 
but it was very interesting for bringing some things to light that I don't think were common knowledge at the time. And the main thing was the fact that the referendum was advisory. Um, had it been binding, because of the breaking of um, the law that happened with the referendum, the result of the referendum could have been overturned had the result been binding. So what we were trying to argue in court was, well, we know it wasn't a binding referendum, but the government chose to treat it as though it was. Yeah. Um, but we didn't get very far with that argument legally, unfortunately, but at least that drew that to the attention that because of the, uh, the electoral process was um, uh, illegal, had it been a general election or, or a binding referendum, the result would have been overturned. So what, what were the, why did that not get very far legally? What, what were the, not-, oh, not The, not the judge, the judge sided, sided with the government, you know? Right. So <laughs> uh, it seems to have been the same judge that has been in all of these cases. <laughs> There's been various legal challenges about the referendum. Um, and we, all of them seem to have ended up on the desk of the same judge. So is it is this, are you saying that this is a, a specific judge that is very pro-government? Um, I, I guess, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, he's, reti he's retired now. Oh, really? Okay. Um, I mean, I don't think, you know, there was any question of, you know, anything untoward going on other no. than, you know, it was seemed a bit of a coincidence. It was always this same seemingly pro-government uh, judge that seemed to be the one with the final decision on any of these cases. Yeah. So you you managed to fit that in around your 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 other campaigning. So you, you got, because I, I remember that. Um, and I remember using this this same argument in in some of in some of the campaigning that i was doing about uh the fact that it was it was uh, it wasn't a binding referendum but it was treated as, as though it was one um i'm not sure even at that stage i fully understood the sort of legality behind all of it um i was i was largely taking my lead from what i was reading in the press which is which is what you have to do isn't it but um so that kind of ended just just didn't really get you anywhere so presumably you you went on and did other stuff um after that so that that was in 2017 did you say um, no, that was that was a bit late. I think it 2019 by the time we finished it, I think. Yeah. By the time we finished it. So you but you so you did you were doing loads of other stuff throughout that period. Just, just very quickly. I did lots of um, lots of marches, obviously. Um, yeah, all the marches. And I did lots of uh, public speaking. So yeah. I spoke at um, I spoke at various um, big events in London and Leeds and Manchester and Brussels and Were you uh, did you have any public speaking experience before? Um, no, I mean, I'd been a manager, so I was used to speaking to a group of you know, like 10 to 30 people, but okay. you know, I'd never been on a stage in front of 120,000 people. No, no, it's not something people tend to do, is it, day to day? Um, so how did you find that? Was that was that a daunting prospect? Did you take to it? Uh, it was daunting beforehand, and I was very, very nervous. Yeah. Um, but once I was on the stage, I wasn't the least bit nervous. I no. just felt quite comfortable and quite at home. I mean, to be fair, you know, I was preaching to the converted. Yeah. So I wasn't going to get heckled or anything. No, no, that's true. Um, and the crowd was so supportive. And I think, you know, I must have got the tone right because each time it went down very well and I seemed to get better at it. Yeah. Now, now no. my husband makes a joke, you know, and says that, you know, don't get between uh, me and a microphone. 
I, I remember you were good. You were you the, the all the speakers I remember. The, the, there were maybe like a handful that you sort of think, okay, they they were okay. But and then but for the, the, there was always a big roar, wasn't there? Um, mm. For 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 the, for the speakers at our events, which I guess is true of most events. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think I kind of got used to what was what was popular and what people were going to like, and and I mean I got a lot of encouragement from some fantastic campaigners and also from some politicians as well. You know, I mean I I got thanked by um, um, various folks. Oh, uh, Vince Cable thanked me for warming the crowd up for him, and yeah, you nice. know uh, yeah. Andrew Adonis said what a good speech it was, and. And um, people like Julie Ward and um, Seb Dancewell was really supportive. And yeah. I remember the last time I gave a speech um, before COVID uh, in London, Seb Dance made a point to come over to say hello to me, you know, before I went on stage and wish me luck and stuff. So that sort of thing really helped. He's a, he's a good guy, Seb Dance. We Fantastic, like yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's move on to identity then. I, I, I've kind of had this running through every episode, just because it's probably the thing that I find the most interesting about all of this. Well, one of the things at least. Um, I've just got an open question. I'll just, I'll just ask you and just see how you answer it. But see, Wilson, are, are you a Ramona? Yes, I think I am a Ramona. Okay. <laughs> Talk to me about what, what you think a Ramona is. What is a Ramona in your, in your, in your eyes? Well, I mean, to me, a Ramona is a Remainer, you know, somebody yep. who, who, supports, who supports pro uh, Europe and is anti-Brexit. Um, I, obviously, it was a term that was coined that was meant to be an insult, but yep. you know, it's an insult I'll gladly wear on my sleeve. Okay. I think we, you know, we we must never stop moaning about you know what the government's doing and what they've done and and the damage and the pointlessness of Brexit. Is is moaning not also the key thing that is required in a democracy? Is it is it not criticizing the powers? of the day, the powers that be, and holding them to account? Is that not what democracy is about? Yeah, and I think it's so important that, you know, campaigners uh, and the general public and the media as well, you know, do speak out about this stuff because we haven't had a great deal of support from the opposition parties over the last four and a half years. And if they don't speak out, then we have to. Mm. Do you mean, I mean, when you say the opposition parties, are you thinking of Labour specifically, because I think well, the Dems and the Greens are pretty good on the whole, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're talking now, you're talking Labour. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, no one can criticise the um, Scottish National Party for for their holding the government to account. No, uh, I'd like to I'd like to see more of that, and especially coming yeah. from Labour. Yeah, yeah. I think there's been such a focus um, on trying to appease. Um, the red wall voters and nobody it seems you know with the exception of you know some of the smaller parties um, is speaking up for the remainers everybody's interested in the levers mm. you know that they want to win over well somebody should be thinking about winning over the remainers because there isn't anybody doing that obviously no, no. And I, yeah right I mean certainly not not at this moment um yeah, I, it's, it's a poison chalice, I think. I think all the parties are looking at it and just thinking, um, if we can sort of downplay the, the, the leave remain axis and try and get back to left, right, try and get back to the more traditional um, cleavages, political cle cleavages, 
um that's that that we're, we're back on ground that we know again and we can we can fight on that ground it's easier to fight on that ground that's that's been my sort of take and i think i know like ed davies come out and said oh i'm i'm for the single market and i'm for the customers union and we're going to campaign to rejoin those um he sort of said that and that's not that's not quite rejoining the eu um but i know it's quite clear that all the parties are sort of like let's just give feed the tories the rope they need to hang themselves a little bit longer a little bit longer this is my reading of it um and and see where when we come through COVID out the other side, see what the state of the country is in, re Brexit at that stage, and then maybe we'll shift. That's kind of my very optimistic view of it. But I mean, there's a lot of Remainers right now who are just pulling their hair out because there's no one representing rejoin as an option currently. And I'm not sure if it's tactically, if, if, if that would work for a party right now. So I'm not, I'm not too concerned that there's not a party right now, but with that said, I still feel like we ought to be, pressuring the parties labor and the lib dems specifically to move to, to be moving in that direction eventually i don't know that's kind of my personal view of it um, i think there's certainly room for for a lot more criticism yeah um and you know i can understand um politicians wanting to move away from the divisiveness of the remain and the lever but that divisiveness still exists and you know the government are doing nothing to, to help that, you know, in the festival of Brexit, for goodness sake, you know, how is that going to heal? They seem to think that's going to heal things. It's not. It's going to make it even more divisive. All that is, is it's a, it's, it's when you win a war and you have a, a winner's parade and you march your troops through the streets yeah. and everyone on the sidelines is seething because the enemy is marching through your town triumphant it, all it is, is is they're just waving their their thing in, in in all of our faces and just being like haha we won you lost that's all it is it's a victory parade and it's yeah it's more device it's, it's totally the opposite of bringing people together it's, yeah. it's, it's it's so divisive and deliberately so in my opinion because it's just throwing red meat to the base isn't it yeah in my opinion but um so we've discussed what we think a sort of a ramona <laughs> ramona romana is what, what is it about the European Union? So I've asked this to everyone and I've had different answers. And this is something that I've been asked in the past. And again, I, this is not a question that I find easy to answer because there's so many aspects to it. But what is it about the European Union as an institution specifically, as opposed to Europe as a, as a continent um, that, that you like, that, that you get out of bed in the morning and you have a fire in your belly about? What is it about the institution as, a, as opposed to the continent, the values, the idea, the people... What is it about the EU? Um, I, I like the fact that it's a group of countries with very different outlooks on the world who are willing to put the differences aside and work together for the common good. Hmm. And I mean, and peace, you know, people talk about the fact that, you know, it's brought peace to, the, to, the, to Europe for years. Um, I think for me, um, when I visited Brussels, it was, it used to bring it all home to me because just walking around the, the European Parliament village, and it is a village, it's so big, it's got shops and restaurants and everything. Um, and it was just the diversity of people. You would walk down the corridor and hear seven or eight different languages being spoken. There were people of all ages and all walks of life, all there with this common goal of doing what's best for everybody. No one was looking out for themselves. They were all looking at the collective good. 
And I just find that a, a very attractive proposition. And also having um, been through Brexit and really started to understand um, as a Brit abroad, just the benefits that being a EU, an EU citizen brought me. I mean, I was aware of the benefits, but I wasn't sure I knew they were all down to the EU. Mm. Well, I, I know exactly now what, what the EU was responsible for and what the British government have taken away. So uh, uh, I really begrudge losing my EU citizenship, even though it won't affect me personally as much as it will affect many others. And because of the withdrawal agreement, you know, I do have rights protected that people who want to follow in my footsteps won't have those rights protected. So I'm better off than some, but it still really hurts that that's been taken away from me against my wishes. It's interesting that you bring up um, peace as one of the things that, that, that make you feel fond of the EU. It's certainly one of the things that made me feel the same. Um, and you and I have a similar, well, almost identical story in, in what you said about the European Parliament. When I went to visit, I had the exact same um, takeaway, which was, it was just, it was so inspiring and moving to see Bulgarians, Dutch, Germans, Italians, French, Brits, all in a room talking about this common, the, the common goals, these shared values, shared beliefs, what they were trying to do. Um, it, and, and those of us, I guess, who have studied history, or at least who study history and have that kind of sense that it could, it could, that could happen again. Like maybe not the absolute savagery of, of the Nazis could happen again, but certainly there could be wars in Europe as there was with the sort of um, the civil war in Yugoslavia and, and um, we've seen with Ukraine and, and places, there have been skirmishes and wars, haven't there, in Europe. But if, if we go back, not, not just to being... Um, different separate countries but what tends to happen what happened when i studied the the period of that preceded world war one was you had similar sized powers who became um not just competitors but when the nationalists came in they they sowed suspicion and paranoia and, and hatred and xenophobia and when that starts to happen all of a sudden barriers go up walls go up fences go up tanks are on the border and it just it can spiral so quickly um and i just I, I don't do you feel there's 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 a a feeling in the uk that um because we weren't occupied in the second world war do you, do you, do you think we have a kind of a, a too too much of a kind of exceptionalist view of our own belonging to to europe that, that the other countries in europe perhaps are, have that kind of more humble i mean how, how what, what what would you put it down to this this feeling that a lot of people on the continent have really bought into the idea of the EU is a foundational um, uh, part of the peace there. Whereas in the UK, there's just too many that people will go, nah, it's not nothing to do with EU, it's NATO, or nah, there'll never be a war again. There seems to be a, a different opinion in the UK. I think part of that is the sort of island mentality. I think if you, you know, if you live in Europe and you're used to, you know, driving, an hour or so down the road and being in a different country yeah. um, or in three different countries, you know, depending on where you live. I think it's much uh, easier to feel that connection. But I think a lot of the disconnection from the UK is deliberate. You know, it, it's it's all this, you know, harking back to empire and, you know, we're the best in the world. I mean, 
Johnson is uh, a specialist at, you know, world beating this and world beating that. And I think that hasn't come from nowhere. You know, that's an attitude that, that's been there that he's fostered. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of it. Plus, you know, we never gave the EU any credit for anything. You know, you drive around European countries and see signs up everywhere, you know, EU money funded this project. You never saw that in, in England because the government never allowed you to see that in England. Mm. Anything that happened was always, you know, we took the credit for it, even if it wasn't our doing. Yeah. So we've never grown up really with this idea that um, the EU is uh, a positive influence. You know, we've just heard all the, the nonsense over the years in the press of, you know, what the EU did wrong and how they're slow at doing everything because they're so big and cumbersome. And, you know, any credit was always down to the British government, not to the European Parliament. And that was both Labour and the Tories that, that sort of pandered to that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's never been uh, part of the British psyche to to really talk about all the benefits that being part of Europe um, brought us, you know, all we ever got was the criticism. Mm. Um, This actually, I guess this kind of segues quite nicely into the next question then, which is how did the Spanish media differ from the British media and how they covered Brexit? Do do, do you, do you follow the Spanish media closely? Um, Not as closely as I do the British media, because obviously with Brexit, it was all about what the UK government were doing. Um, but certainly, you know, if it's anything Brexit related, then yes, I do follow it in the Spanish media. Um, it was incredulity, really. I mean, the Spanish are, are incredibly proud of being EU members. They value their membership very highly. So they couldn't understand how any country, uh, let alone the UK, which they have a lot of respect for, could be so stupid. You know, why would anybody choose to shoot yourself in the foot like that? You know, it makes no sense. So, so incredulity, that's quite a, quite a nice word, I guess. Um, that, that really wasn't the tone of the British media throughout there, was it? Let's be fair. No. <laughs> it, was, it was the opposite of incredulity. It was, it was, it was arrogance and, uh, well, it was all sorts of stuff, but definitely not incredulity. Um, so, I mean, was the conversation different? Because if, if the tone was different, um, what was did, did that trigger a conversation in Spain, for instance, about the, the pros and cons of the EU or anything um, like that? I don't think so, because I don't think there was too many people thinking that membership of the EU was a problem. Right. say, you know, Spain is very proud of uh, its EU membership. Um, I think they were really looking at it in terms of, well, how is it going to affect us? How is Brexit going to affect Spain? You know, um, and I think they, in some ways, have taken advantage of that. And, you know, they are creeping up in the ranks, as it were, and becoming a more important country in, in Europe. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was looking at, well, you know, how, how, how will that affect Spain? But I say just the idea that it was just such a crazy idea, you know, why would anybody put themselves in that position? They just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't compute, you know, it doesn't make any sense to the Spanish at all. No. This is the thing I, I think about when I look back at the, um, the polls that preceded the, the 2014 um, EU elections, where they looked at Euroscepticism, uh, uh, the, um, what were they called, the polls, the 
social attitude, the social attitude survey. Uh, what, what's that called again? Social attitude survey. Anyway, um, the, the the yearly surveys they do on on, on attitudes in the UK and and Euroscepticism was just like bobbing along at like five ten percent or something. Um, and it wasn't until David Cameron said we're going to have a referendum um, in when was it 2015? He said that or no? He said it originally in 2012, didn't he? Um, that it's, it, that it took this enormous bounce um, and it became like the second thing that people cared about in the UK. So, I, and, and that was largely down to one person, David Cameron, and then a little bit to do with Nigel Farage, I guess, and UKIP, but not really. And then, and then it was just the hammer blow after hammer blow of the, of the press who were Euroskeptics and knew they could sell Euroscepticism to a kind of cynical audience. In Spain, do you have... Do you have this kind of right-wing grip of the media that know that they could sell something like Euroscepticism in the future, perhaps, that, that would work? Because it, we didn't seem like a Eurosceptic country particularly, maybe more ambivalent uh, 10 years ago. Do you, do, you think, do you think that in Spain there is, or in any country in Europe that you're aware of, there's an opportunity? If the media has a real grip and there's cynicism, do you think it could happen anywhere? Um, I think um, the media certainly played an enormous part in, in what happened in the UK and there's no reason not to think that that couldn't happen somewhere else as well. But um, I don't think there was too much evidence of that here. I mean, certainly there was a concern um, four years ago that what was happening, uh, the move towards more right-wing politics in France and in the UK and in other countries, um, there was a concern that was going to happen in Spain too. And then one party started to get um, uh, more popular, but that seems to have died down in the last four years and in the last um, last couple of elections. And we've had quite a few elections recently. Yeah. In the last couple of elections, the, the right-wing have done less well. So hopefully that was just a blip. Um, but it was the same kind of sentiments. It was all, you know, everything's the fault of the immigrants. Right. Yeah. I mean, you don't need to reinvent the wheel when you're selling hate, do you? Let's be honest. No, Populism. No. <laughs> the, old, the old stories work. You yeah. Know, so. yeah. Um, so to come back to how, how Brexit has impacted you, your life, I think we, we touched on this earlier, but I just wanted to just sort of like flesh this out a little bit more. Has now that Brexit's happened, are there day-to-day -day differences or are there things that you can just you can point out and just be like, Brexit has robbed me of this, Brexit has changed this aspect of my life? Somebody living out in Spain now. Um, it's a difficult one to, to get to grips with right at the moment because so much of what we're being denied at the moment is a combination of Brexit and COVID. Yeah. You know, the big the big problem for me personally is an inability to travel. Um, because I've got, you know, my mum's in a care home in the UK and I usually, right. you know, visit on a monthly basis and I can't do that. I haven't been able to do that for months. Um, but in terms of um, long t longer term, when it's just Brexit and not COVID affecting my plans, because I'm retired and I live happily in Spain and plan to spend the rest of my life here, it affects me less than it will others. I don't want to go and work in another country. I don't want to go and live in another country. I'm very happy where I am. Mm. So traveling will be more expensive. Things are going to be more complicated. There'll be more paperwork involved. And all of that's a pain. 
but none of it's going to ruin my life. No, no. <laughs> um, but having said that, you know, it's not just about me personally. And, and this campaigning has never been about me personally. It's been about what's happening to everybody, what's happening to British citizens in Europe and in the UK, yeah. you know, and what they stand to lose. And as I say, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, if I was wanting to move to Spain now, that would be a dream that would be off the table because I wouldn't meet the criteria. And there are going to be other people in, in that situation who have had those dreams stolen from them. Yeah. Now, I mean, if you've got have... money, if you've got money, it's no problem. But then anything yeah. to do with Brexit, if you have a bank balance, that means you can get around the issues. It's not going to be of any concern, but it's not the people with the money that have got the problems. No, no. So Brexit, once again, it's just another example of Brexit hitting hardest the people who sadly vote, who were sort of, I mean, I, I, I'm just going to straight up say they were conned into voting for something that was against their interests. Um, <laughs> people with people, you know, toward the bottom end of society, traditional Labour voters um, who thought they were going to get money for the NHS. So understandably, voting for something that you thought was going to benefit you, but believing charlatans, unfortunately, um, yeah. who, who just flat out made up stuff that they thought, well, that they that Cummings had gone out and um, he'd done his homework, his research, and just and just cynically thought, what are the, what are the buzzwords that, that these people care about? Let's just say leaving the EU will help in that area. I mean, it's very simple, but yeah. cynical. Um, people were conned, you know, and I mean, I have, I have uh, sympathy with people who voted for something better than what they've got, <laughs> because yeah. so many that voted um, for Brexit didn't have anything to start with, and they yeah. were voting for change, and yeah. you can't blame any people, many no, people in that situation for wanting change. No, of course I, I don't hold with all this, you know, never forgive those people that put us in this position because it's the people we've got to hold responsible are those that conned them, not the ones that were conned. Precisely, yeah, exactly. And you're not gonna, we're not gonna have a country left if we if we don't bury the hatchets between ourselves. We need to unite, in my opinion, and take on the, the liars who put us in this position in the first place, who tried to destroy the country that I love and that you love. Um, mm. So, I mean, I was gonna ask you, is it still viable to retire to the continent? I think you just basically answered that. If um, you have money. If you have <laughs> money, yeah. Uh, but it's still, there's going to be extra paperwork and complications. Yeah. And, I mean, life. obviously it's different if you're you're coming here for, for work, then you have to get a, a visa. And a lot of that, a lot of the complications and the expense that go with that would be done by your employer. Yeah. So, you know, some of that can be smoothed out for you. The problem is, is that um, if you don't have freedom of movement, then you're not as attractive as an employee, as a Brit, That's as right. an EU citizen would be. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the chances of getting a job are more difficult. So uh, even though yeah. if you've got one, getting a visa and being able to live here would be less of a problem. You've got to get the job in the first place. Precisely. My Actually, my youngest brother, um, Josh, he's... He uh, qualified as a as a professional ballet dancer last year, um, and he's living out in Bulgaria at the moment, um, doing his first year as a professional ballet dancer out there. But many of his peers, um, and if he wants to move on um, from the UK, they're all struggling really badly now to be taken seriously because the ballet companies are basically just like, well, why would we 
why would we bother employing you, which you're going to cost us way more money than an equally talented dancer from Italy or France or, or, or Russia. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, not Russia, but Germany or somewhere. Um, so he's, yeah, he, him and his peers have, have discovered this firsthand. Um, and they were too young to vote. So it's been forced upon them as well. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a generational ticking time bomb on Brexit, in my opinion, uh, which is another factor. But so I think the thing with Brexit, and it's been the case all the way through, is we're finding out new stuff every day. Yeah. You know, we think it's complicated now. You know, give it another six months, we'll know all sorts of stuff we haven't even dreamed of up until now. Exactly. Yeah. And when COVID passes, we'll be able to see the wood for the trees because we'll be able to we'll be able to separate yeah. what was COVID, what now, what's Brexit, and that that would be that would be a lot simpler. Although obviously the, the British press um, and the Tories will try to muddy the waters as best as possible and blame everything on COVID. Um, to try and smear lipstick on the on the Brexit pig, but um, so very quickly, Sue. I mean, I, I don't actually know if you are a if you what your opinions are on rejoining. But I've kind of written down how do we rejoin and when. Are, are you even on the rejoin side? Like um, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. There's, for me, there's no other option. Right. You know, we we have to get back in the EU. <laughs> you know, the, the the UK can't survive without it. I don't believe. Um, I don't think it's going to be easy and I don't think it's going to be quick um, and I think there are steps along the road that help us to get there. Mm. Um, I think there's no chance while we've got um, a Tory government so we've got to get rid of the current government uh, or any Tory government to have any chance whatsoever so nothing's going to happen before the next election. No. Um, I think um, it's becoming increasingly obvious and presumably that will continue to be so especially as um, um, all the um, grace periods fall away um, that business needs to be in the single market and the customs union so that would obviously be a, a sensible first step but it must only be a first step it cannot be the end goal because if we're going to go as far as um, moving um, to single market and customs union, then we have to have a voice at the table as well. Exactly. So I think once you've got that far down the road, then it's not too difficult a step to say, okay, well, if we're going to take advantage of the market and the union, then we need to have a voice as well. Yeah. Yeah. Lead to, to, to lead, to be a leader as well, to be a leader of an institution that is trying to, I mean, a friend of mine is a journalist out in, um, I can't remember if he's in Vietnam or Cambodia at the moment, but he wrote an, he wrote an essay for me um, about how the European Union has basically pulled a lot of trade. I, I, can't, I think it was in Cambodia. Um, anyway, um, because of their, some of their human rights abusers. So the, the EU have been like, no, no, if you're going to abuse human rights, you've signed up to this declaration. We've all signed up to it. If you're going to abuse human rights, we're going to start pulling some of our trade with you. And but what what's happened in London and in, in the Tories, they're trying to exploit that by trying to get in there and trade with these countries that are abusing human rights. So this is, I think, when um, Dominic Raab says things like you need to take a 10 year view of Brexit and Jacob <laughs> Rees-Mogg says it's going to be 50 years before we see any benefits. What they mean is you need to give us long enough in the UK to become a bargain basement offshore tax haven for for anyone who wants to dump their money, any money laundering. And secondly, we need to find time to exploit these third world, second world countries where they're, where they're abusing human rights. The reason why they voted against not signing trade deals with um, countries that abuse human rights is because they want to exploit that. 
Um, it's just, it, and so why would we not want to move back to the EU, which is clearly on the right side of history? Why would anyone want to be on the side of history where we just cynically go and, and sign trade agreements um, with regimes that are abusing their, their, so anyway, so that's another thing that, that just totally seems like an obvious argument for us when we, when we try to go back in. Um, but anyway, so very quickly, um, what have you learned, Sue, over the course of the last five years of, oh, well, yeah, five years of campaigning almost? Uh, well, I think I've learned I'm a lot angrier than I thought I was. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> I've learned, learned lots of new skills. Um, um, I think it's, it's boosted my confidence as well. I mean, I was always an extrovert, so it wasn't like I was lacking in confidence, but okay. you know, I've had the confidence to do things that yeah. I would never have dreamed possible. Um, I've also um, uh, become a, uh, a bit of a writer, so I'm like writing lots of articles now, and I, that's something I would never have dreamed I'd be doing in a million years. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and I'm finding that because as a, a Brit abroad, it's always been very difficult to get our voices heard, that the writing is one way I've been able to do that. So, you know, I can't... Uh, don't get very far to speak into politicians in the UK these days, especially, you know, from here. And even with um, campaigners, you know, when we talk about citizens' rights, um, the EU citizens in the, in the UK have, have come first. And, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. Mm. Um, and I support everything that, you know, that they do as well. But we're always kind of left out because we're outside of the country. So I think getting getting yeah. voice, our voices heard is, 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 is important. And I think writing is one way to do that. Yeah. Um, I guess certainly if you could say there's one benefit of uh, Brexit, it's just the, the amazing people I've come into contact with. So some built some really strong friendships um, that will last uh, a lifetime. And also rejected a few old ones. I was, uh, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was resisting the urge to ask you if, if, yeah. uh, if it had gone the other way as well. Yes, but, it's a few that um, don't get a Christmas card anymore. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that's... And this is one of the things that I've actually found as well, um, is that before when I was not political, it, it was very easy to just sort of maintain loose, relation, loose, loose friendships because you weren't really putting too much of yourself out there for people to, to dislike. But when when you decide like i decided to do to sort of become almost like a, a political pundit like an amateur political pundit you're you're a lot of the stuff you say can be quite divisive and not not divisive in language and tone or anything but you're you're touching on things that people have an emotional very strong emotional um response to so um i i've noticed a lot of school friends that i was that i was mates with before all of this of just quietly unfriended me and, and stuff like that. And it's, it's sometimes you look and you just think, oh, it's sad that they've done that. But it's sort of, it comes with the territory. And, and yeah. um, at the end of the day, in my opinion, I made this decision, life's too short. I really care about this. I want to see, I want to see the country go back in the direction that it was, that was, that it was headed, you know, 2012. I mean, actually, no, not earlier than 2012, earlier than 2008, you know, when, when we had new labor in and, and things weren't fantastic, but that at least you had a government you sort of trusted other than Iraq, maybe. Um, you sort of trusted the people in charge. You sort of trusted the, the characters of the people and sort of could see good people there and, and you could see the values and they respected democracy and all of our founding principles and all the, 
all of that's completely gone now with Johnson's government. So it feels like, if anything, my my campaigning energy is is even more has become even more increased since the general election um, because it just feels like there's so much at stake even after, even now we brexited. Um, but yeah, so. Yeah, there's still plenty to do. <laughs> still plenty to do, more to do, so much to do. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's good that we've got this community, biggest biggest pro EU community anywhere, anywhere in Europe. It is, yeah, it's, and it's, we we have to we have to build on that because. Yeah. You know, if we want to get back into Europe, it's 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 not going to be just straightforward. We turn up at the EU's door and say, "Please, can we come back?" You know, yeah, yeah. Um, we've got to rebuild all that lost trust. Uh, got to get them to, time. you know, yes, it, it is going to take time. The, you know, the damage that's been done to relations with the EU. I mean, even since Brexit was supposedly done, you know, the the sort of rhetoric and language that you hear from. Number 10 is doing nothing to, to smooth those waters at all. So yeah. you've got to yeah. rebuild and then, you know, say, and prove to them that, you know, we're serious, that we're not going to be asking to leave again in another five years down the line. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the, that's, that's the, that's the, the other tragedy of this is that it takes so long to build a bridge and it takes a, a split second to dynamite the whole thing to the ground, doesn't it? So, yeah. and that's, so now we're in a, now we're in a construction phase. Oh, but unfortunately, build a tunnel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sue, I think I've slightly gone over, so um, we'll we'll end it there. This is is uh, before we go. Is is there any parting message you'd like to give to anyone who's listening to this, who's a Remainer, a, a, you know, who might be thinking about maybe stepping up in terms of their campaigning or anything? Is is there a message you want to give? A message of hope or optimism? Um, I think certainly never give up. Um, and, and don't underestimate, you know, the, the power of speaking out um, and to, to look for people um, that you can uh, work with, but also think about what you can do individually, because, you know, it's, we've got thousands of members in, in Bromain in Spain, and uh, most of them will be happy to be kept informed uh, and leave it at that. But, you know, we need people to get more active. So even whether it's writing to the paper or writing to your MP or think about what you can do as an individual uh, and don't leave it all to the likes of you and me. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Sue Wilson, thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that. Next week on the show, we have Jordan Byrne, the founder of Young Conservatives for People's Vote. In this episode, we talk about the challenges that came with being a conservative on the Remain side of the argument a few years ago. We talk about why Jordan set the group up in the first place, what its objectives were, and we also talk about whether or not there is a crisis of conservatism at the moment. I hope to see you then. Thanks very much.